All right, we're back. Split Take Podcast this week. Chandler and I are here with our good buddy, Nick. Say hi to the folks, Nick. Hi to the folks. As some of you may or may not know, Nick has been on the podcast a few times. He's essentially the the third host of this podcast occasionally. Uh, Pretty much. Yeah, whatever. Nick watches three movies a year and they're all for us. (laughs) And they're all made in 1976. (laughs) What was the last time? Uh, Five Bloods? Oh, the Five Bloods was and the not color of cranberries. Was the last time you were on here? I did the yeah, Five yeah. Bloods. I did uh, Nashville. Oh, that's right. Draws. I did do Nashville. We've I actually did uh, American Movie. Do you remember how Nashville? I accidentally we accidentally skipped ahead for Nashville. Mm-hmm. I think we're we're there. We've we've caught up to that skipping. Oh, heck so. yeah! So we're gonna do Nashville again? No. I was also I was also on the decade in review episode. Yeah, that, I think it was just your first. So I've been I've been here a lot. Yeah, mark. that was my first one. I've been here a lot of times. He's the Alec Baldwin of this podcast. Can't get rid. I'm like this. I'm like the Steve Buscemi of uh, Jacob Kaufman podcasts. What? <laughs> I only have my one. Metaphor, my metaphor was much more realized. I'm going to ask that Jacob removes your metaphor from the official recording. It has been stricken from the record. Okay, clear comms. <laughs> ah, so it's another week. We are deep into August. I am I'm desperately trying to catch up on editing and publishing, but I'm if, doing nothing. Yes, Chandler just has to watch movies. <laughs> I don't even watch as many as you do. Don't even take notes, too. But nope. Uh, well, I think you're the better half of the conversation, so. A uh, epic. That's that's the division of labor. There you right go. Right there. All right. So I know Nick hasn't really been watching anything, but Nick, have you watched anything? <laughs> TV. I had like a I had like a two months that like I blacked out and I just played video games all day for like two straight months and I forgot movies even existed. So now that I'm now that I'm back, um, are you coming out of the coma? Yeah, I'm out of the coma. It's pretty sick though. You know, I was playing a lot of Warzone. I felt like a real man. Anyways, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, what have I been watching? I've been trying to watch more movies. All I've been watching are just Studio Ghibli movies for some reason. Yeah, that was a bit why. of an interesting choice. I didn't expect it from you. They're just very satisfying to watch. Yes. They're comfy. Like, regardless of the film, regardless of the filmmaking, it's just like, you know, like nice colors and like the scores are always beautiful and like kind of whimsical and it's it's just like satisfying to watch. They're they're lighthearted like adventures. All of them are, with, and then you nice watch themes. Grave of the Fireflies, and then you want to like, <laughs> and then you want to like die, bro, like literally die. That movie is just it's just unapologetically depressing. I made a connection between our film today, Phantom Thread, and Studio Ghibli. Uh, I was at work and I was thinking about the mushrooms and I was looking up mushrooms just for, for a good 10 minutes. Don't tell my boss. And I was like, wouldn't it be cool if the world was taken over by mushrooms? Like just giant mushrooms everywhere. Why? Why and did then, you say this to another human being? I'm really <laughs> glad you didn't tell your boss this. And then, and then I was like, wait, there's already a movie of that. And it's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which neither of you have seen, but you should watch because it's one of Miyazaki's good ones. It's on the list. It's on the list of ones to watch. That one also looked very um, heavily influenced by aviation, yes. which I enjoy. 
Daniel Day-Lewis kind of looks like he could be a pilot. There's another connection there. Like a classic British pilot from World War II. (laughs) He's playing David Niven in the remake of uh, A Matter of Life and Death. You know what's my favorite line from A Matter of Life and Death? What? When he first meets the French spirit and all he says is, Are you cracked? (laughs) The word word cracked is funny to me. Because the spirit tells him that he's dead, but you're you're supposed to be dead, but he's not dead, and he just responds with, "Are you cracked?" And it's oh, a delightfully British. British response. Yes. <laughs> Are you cracked? <laughs> but yeah, that's really it. I watched Studio Ghibli. Um, I gotta honestly pull up my letterbox. It's pronounced Ghibli, by the way. Princess Mononoke. Wait, what am I? Wait, I, have I been Ghibli. saying it wrong? Eh, no, not really. <laughs> Choose your own what? adventure. Oh my gosh. Princess, Princess Monoki is pretty great. So I had over a month long hiatus from The Five Bloods to Princess Mononoke. Was, I did not watch a movie. Oh no. Two months. That's even worse. Oh, wow. yeah, that say. sucks. And then I watched Princess Mononoke and I watched Porco Rosso in Grave of the Fireflies. It's been over two months since we recorded our The Five Bloods episode. That sounds about That's right. Crazy. But I did spend an entire month staring at the same four walls. So. <laughs> you know I spent the last seven months staring at the same four walls <laughs> these walls if these walls could talk they'd tell you to swim good no boat I float better than he would <laughs> wait so what's your beef with Mononoke because I'm not going to hear this I told Jacob so you know I had the sudden realization okay so this is this is Nick Johnson in hindsight of saying this thought they're like ki- like kids movies. I don't know why it took me so long to realize they're like kids movies. I just thought they were movies. Like for some reason they just I glazed over the fact. Well, cuz they're more adult that they're made than for most kids. normal kids yeah, movies. Yeah, because they're they well, are very adult. Yeah, they Especially are very adult Mononoke. and they're very violent. Besides the point. So I was watching Princess Mononoke and I'm like this is just like too fantastical for me that it like like giant fucking wolves. It just like took me out of the movie for some reason. It's sick. And the movie's really like well done, and I think it's it's honestly a good movie. But the Great idea, movie. like the ideas presented, were like too fantastical to me that it just took me out. Um, and then you know I thought of that, and then like a week later, I'm I'm like, wait, these are like kids' movies. So I mean, I mean, of course it's gonna be fantastical. But for some reason, when I watched it, I wasn't thinking it was a kids' movie. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't hate it. I just yeah, big wolves. Hmm. It's too it's much. one too of the more definitely one of the more out there of the movies yeah because like there's the board, a lot of the, the ghibli movies demon. have yeah a lot of the ghibli movies have a nice little balance between like fantasy and reality mm-hmm. um totoro is just little sprinkles of it porco rosso is a kiki's little bit delivery more. service is kiki yeah kiki's is pretty mild but like spirited away and princess mononoke are like full-on yep. fantasy worlds yep. there's the other directors of uh ghibli have strayed a lot more into just normal like almost dramas like only yesterday or from up on poppy hill those are just like they're nothing fantastical whatsoever about them you like ponyo is anime really, drama oh that's Grave a fantastic ponyo is a drama no ponyo is a fantastical real. film through and through i don't know what you're talking about dude i know i'm just kidding <laughs> ponyo is a wartime epic <laughs> I suppose if you're no like water. one years old, it's a, it's a, it's a wartime <laughs> epic. 
<laughs> I've seen the trailer for Ponyo and I thought it was really annoying. Yeah, it's it's the most kid movie of his. So Nick should watch it, clearly, if it's the most. Yeah, child one. yeah we'll Ponyo, do a double feature Ponyo. of Ponyo and Mind Game with this with this new realization from Nick. I would like to retract a recommendation that I gave Nick. What'd you uh, give him? If you are not as keen on anime as you say you are, I am going to fully retract my recommendation to watch your name because oh, God, I don't no, want to hear any negative thoughts on that film. I thought that's where this was going. I won't entertain it. <laughs> don't. They were talking shit about it in the Criterion Discord, and that's what they got were. me to join. That's what got me the to day, join. The day that Jacob joined was he only joined out of spite <laughs> to defend your name. Oh, I no, not even to defend, just to, to look at the conversation. There is one user in the Criterion Discord who does like deep delves into a director's filmography, and he just got through all of Fellini's stuff. Mm. And like the, la- the latter half of Fellini's, he just hated everything. And he went from Fellini to the guy who does did your name, and he loves everything that guy does. It's a good director. The uh, Garden of Words is a really just stunningly beautiful anime. Yeah. And it's only like an hour long. So if there's I, one thing your name does amazingly, it's look good. But it's it's over the top. And I know it. It's so. very. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it looks Night good. Is, amazingly. Night is really Sherlock on Girl is also over the top. So it's not like. Yeah, but that's great. Oh, shut the fuck up. But that's cinema. You you can leave this podcast <laughs> if you're going to make such incendiary remarks. Whoa, Jacob, when are we going to watch Mind Game? I don't know. When do you want to? Well, the God I, of used the God of used book markets is very like grounded in reality. So you that's mean what Ozu? I, think I liked about it so much. What? Yeah. Nick doesn't know no. what you're talking about. Yeah. We we watched Tatami Galaxy, which has the same characters, but not like they're uh, the same designs, just different characters. Mm-hmm. So. Oh. Speaking of same characters, but not the same character. I want to learn. I want to tell you guys something that I learned the other day. Mm. Completely off topic. Clint Eastwood and the man with no name trilogy. You know how his iconic look is Poncho squinting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The squinting thing was not a choice. Apparently, 90 percent of the movie was shot facing the sun. (laughs) So Clint Eastwood was just squinting all the time. (laughs) He just straight up can't even see. What an iconic accident. But yes. Hmm. Yeah. Wait, I forgot name? this is an alcoholic podcast. It is. Oh, no. I'm already too in. I'm too deep. <sighs> My dad only buys like super duper hoppy bitter beer, and it's like I gross. love that shit. Whoa. Love, should, love Keith. Trade with Chandler. Is, it is. I love dark beers, but like when they're super hoppy, it's like whoa. Keith always has 805. No, he has a lot of 805. He oh, would okay. buy 805 for me pretty much oh okay and then he just then he stopped i think he forgot i exist uh, <laughs> or maybe he's just trying to punish me like passive aggressive way like give you <laughs> shitty beer uh i'm not he, sure he's but... cutting off your food supply one item at a time <laughs> <laughs> weird <laughs> weird idea to start the food supply off with beer <laughs> We don't want to start with the big ones with like water. Could have put, put rice in. Could have put rice in, in the water, water supply. Ended it very quickly, but instead he's he's taking the long route. Gets up in the morning. Where's all the water gone? <laughs> Somebody took all the marshmallows out of my Lucky Charms. Weird. <laughs> Literally one food at a time. So an interesting thing I watched recently was some of Fritz Lang's filmography, which is disappearing from the uh, Criterion Channel. 
and oh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention Dr. Mabuse, which is fucking awesome, but I am gonna it's mention a four hour silent movie that he watched and loved. It was so good. Gosh. I cannot it it was a process of discovery because like watching it was you know like greed everything I wanted greed to be was what I found in Dr. Mabuse. It was that's, like that's that like is actually entertaining, pretty, um, suspenseful. It did silent films right. I could see like all the inspirations that were like splintered and fractaled off of it. You can like draw connections from like Breaking Bad plot lines to that film, and it was so just that was just fun. Hmm. Um, but no, that's not what I'm I'm here to to bring up real quick. I watched uh, Fritz Lang's 1921 film Destiny, silent film. It's only like 90 minutes. Beautiful film. Not here to recommend it. It was just a connection I found that the film is about a woman who her fiance is taken by death and she makes a bet with death to try and get her fiance back. And a lot of the imagery was very specifically reminding me of a matter of life and death and the seventh seal. So if you're interested in something that is a shorter silent film that's still pretty good not as good as dr mabuse the gambler um but was a very i'm pretty sure like it's too coincidental not to be a direct inspiration for those films so all the oh, all that film history is is people ripping off each other yeah decades and decades at a time which should be your defense whenever you steal and rip we, off we, stuff. we ripped off we ripped off marvel's avengers <laughs> hulk hands of course we we avengers we ripped off edward norton's hulk <laughs> it was a hulk inspired product i watched over <laughs> i watched over I watched, hulk inspired product. don't you love when the don't you love when the hosts take five minutes to laugh at an inside joke that none of the audience understands hey hey clear comms <laughs> oh clear comms and then follow it up with more inside jokes yeah love it <laughs> Yeah. Inside jokes I don't even know about. Yeah. Jacob, can we have a very brief discussion on one movie I watched the other day but haven't sure. logged? Okay. Vera Drake. Ah. So our Mike Lee wow. discussion continues. <laughs> I too have been watching Mike, some more Mike Lee, but I, I only have one left. Oh. Um, and we're gonna bridge this discussion into the movie discussion because if there's one prevailing thread throughout Mike Lee's filmography, it's that both Leslie Manville and Timothy Spall are amazing actors. Leslie Manville is like the the hidden gem that you <laughs> you suddenly stumble upon, and before you realize it, she's the best actress on screen whenever she appears. Leslie Manville is the Daniel Day Lewis of actors. Uh, for reference at home, Leslie Manville in Phantom Thread, which we will be discussing in a minute, she plays uh, Cyril. Uh, Cyril Woodcock. The sister, yes, of yeah. the guy. But yeah, uh, Vera Drake, Vera Drake, or as it's known um, in other countries as British Frowning Simulator. It was an amazing <laughs> movie. <laughs> Just the whole, halfway through the movie, because the movie's about a, a, a delightful young woman played by Imelda Staunton, who is, a, is an abortionist in 1950s, uh, London when it is illegal um, and she plays the most happy-go-lucky oh, oh, old woman. See what you did there. She plays the, the most beautiful, beautifully happy, chipper old woman 
older woman, middle-aged woman. And then about halfway through the movie, when all the drama starts happening, she's doing this for the rest of the movie. And the whole time, I'm just like, God, that must hurt <laughs> to frown that much. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the a most heavy drama film. drama that ever dramaed. <laughs> well, when you're making a film about abortion, uh, yeah. 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 It was really good, though. Yeah. It was really it good. It is. As, I mean, I feel like that goes without saying on this podcast when it comes to Mike Lee at this point. Yeah. So, yeah. We've never had uh, a negative thing to say about that, man. No. I only have one more movie left. I do need to watch Mike watch Lee. Naked. That's a good start. Yeah. yeah. Just don't watch it in a room with other people. <laughs> <laughs> it starts with rape and goes from there. <laughs> oh, great. Literally the first scene is our protagonist raping somebody. <laughs> Jesus I mean, it, Christ. it's tastefully done. Tastefully. tastefully done. Tastefully done. In but the yeah, way that uh, does things. Yeah. Vera Drake. Um, I only know Imelda Staunton from. She appears at the very she, beginning of another year. Another year. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another one that you watched that I also watched. That was fun to, to see that connection. Yeah. And, I, you know, I thought she was amazing. In this I thought everyone was great in this. Um, it's just it's one of those movies that it's just it is the most genre conforming drama really because there's not really much that it does amazingly but well it does everything amazingly but it's nothing that it does like revolutionary it's just a very mike lee does this thing where where most directors or writers would have something that they try to say and they use the characters to try to say that Mike Lee makes their entire movies about characters. And then you have to decide what those characters all represent. Um, but this one, it, it was hard to watch, but it was very good. And uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to say, like it's, it's so standard for him at this point that I can't say much about it as far as like what it does amazingly. But it was good. Very sad ending. Yeah. Does doesn't it take the ending? Did I just see incorrectly or is the ending set in the same prison that Paddington is? Paddington 2 is in? I think it, it is. looks like it. Oh, really? It really yeah, does look set. like it. Yeah. Big if true. So I mean, maybe both London parallel movies, universes. So. Uh, maybe there's a sequel, Veridrake 2, where she turns the prison <laughs> around to a happy place. Could you imagine with both Vera Drake and Paddington in the same prison? That would be the loveliest prison on the planet. Uh, it would be an overload. <laughs> wholesome, you got understand. <laughs> brothers a helping hand. <laughs> if we haven't mentioned it before, you should watch Paddington too. If you we'll love your neighbor. We're going to do a double feature of Come and See in Paddington too. Is that, is that going to be our 100 episode special? Gooby and Paddington 2, two, two most recommended movies. Speaking of which, uh, we are at or past, depending on how much I split up episodes, uh, episode 50. So Damn. Yeah, yes. Nice. Yeah, I am really happy. don't even happy. label the episodes. What? Oh, no, yeah, I stopped labeling them. I figured, because the point is, it the, the podcast has become less about the BFI, and that's just a part of it. And so when it was only about the BFI, we were going on like a journey through that. And then it made sense yeah. to label it episode by episodes because you'd be going in that order. But now it's more so focused on just the reviews. 
So like yeah. episodes are just called Code Unknown, which was released today. And you can watch that out of time and place and still like find something of value out of that. Um, so it doesn't need to be in order. They are obviously put in order behind the scenes. They are all labeled and mm-hmm. Spotify will list them from the correct order. But I, I felt drop the numbers, make it even simpler. Split take podcasts, split take cinema, phantom thread, something like that. True. Uh, well, do we want so, to yeah. talk about phantom thread then? Fan, the segue. <laughs> segue. Graceful segue. Phantom yeah. thread. So we're continuing I our... listen to Grateful Dead. <laughs> oh, no. Look at that. So we're continuing <laughs> our conversation about Paul Thomas Anderson, which I have a feeling we will review all of his filmography on this podcast at some point. And I really want to see Heart Eight Doubt and Magnolia. It. We're going to do Inherent Vice pretty soon. Man, so. yeah. We uh, are. Yeah. So the other week we reviewed There Will Be Blood with East Coast Chandler. And so that mm-hmm. episode will be out when this one's out. So go check that out if you want to hear our thoughts on that film. Uh, but we're going to talk about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's 2017 film, Phantom Threat. Who wants to take it? Uh, I can Nick. describe it. Or yeah, okay. you describe no, it. And hey, then, hey, hey, hey! No, no, no! Now he's got the notes. This man's got the moleskin notebook. He can describe. I didn't. I th- my notes consist of like four lines about editing. Maybe I should just it's continue editing. Introducing it. Da- Daniel Day Lewis is a dressmaker, but you won't believe he coerced into fucking him at a restaurant this time. Daniel Day-Lewis takes the helms as Mr. Woodcock in the sequel to the Sean William Scott film, Mr. Woodcock. Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread stars a gang of old women that uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is coerced into making dresses for him. Uh, And then a girl shows up and she poisons him. And then the the movie ends. Oh, is it spoilers? Spoiler. That's like a mid Uh, mid film. Spoiler. Not right, really. We'll cut that, just, just, just blur we'll that cut part. But it's not known until the end. Blur that part out. Meets a girl um, that seems like one, just another, but the, then turns out that she's Jacob, more than another. <laughs> there's more than there's more meets the eye with this with this uh, cool cat, this lady. <laughs> uh, that's it. I mean, that's that's the whole movie. What else is there to say? Cool cat saves Daniel. Uh, dressmaker, dressmaker, dressmaker romance with a cool cat. <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis and Leslie Manville star in Paul Thomas Anderson's The Phantom Menace. <laughs> I hate dresses. They're coarse and dense and get everywhere. <laughs> well, those jokes were not based on any inside jokes, so we can leave them in safely. We'll have fun with that. Yeah, yeah. leave those ones in. So. Was that good enough for you? Was that a good description? Yeah. Chandler and I have some experience, some some heavy experience with Daniel, with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's filmography. But Nick, would you like to uh confess your your sin? Um this is my this is my first Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Uh um, And how'd you like one it? ahead of Brennan Sanju now? Consider myself a gamer um, <laughs> by trade. Uh <laughs> Uh, so what what did I think? Yeah, Warzone player of his, of his direction or of the movie? Well, they're one and the same, but we're yeah, 
We'll talk about the film. Uh, I thought the what movie was very good. Thought um, I thought his directing style was very unique. Um, comes out in the editing a lot, especially. Uh, we can get into that later. But, um, I mean, Daniel Day, you know Daniel Day-Lewis is going to kill it. And he did, of course. Um, I found the story very compelling, almost in like a, like a, I don't know, it's like an eerie way. It's just a very strange, the film just makes you feel very strange. It's just a weird movie. As Daniel it's a Hitchcock Day-Lewis. romance. Yeah, he describes yes. it as like a gothic romance. So, yeah. It's very compelling, kind of though. Very compelling. Very beautifully shot. I love the film quality of it. It's great. Yeah. Great movie. Yeah. See, oh, I'm going to say this, that my introduction to this movie was, you know, before it came out, I was reading all the news articles about it, as I do, as I'm currently doing with his next movie, which is working title called Soggy Bottom. Um, but, you know, when I was reading news about this, you know, I heard Daniel Day-Lewis was in it and I was very excited. And then I got the unfortunate news that Robert Elswit, the cinematographer with PTA up till that point, was not going to be returning because they had a falling out on Inherent Vice. I was heartbroken. So I was like, Robert Elswit is half the reason these movies work. And then shortly after that, it was announced that PTA was going to be his own cinematographer or that there was going to be no cinematographer, depending on how you look at it. And that made me even more sad because I'm like, oh, he's going to get too. He's going to be spread too thin across this movie and it's going to suffer because of it um fuck you robert elswit uh <laughs> this is better this is better looking than any of his other movies i'll say it this Even is more one of the be best blood. looking films of the of the last decade i think i put it on my on my best cinematography list essay that i did like a year ago now no it was like six months ago I had a category and I put this and Roma together because they're both yes. films without designated cinematographers, although the, the camera crew and Paul Thomas Anderson worked together to create the look of the film. So there is people who did that job. It's not like that job was just vacated yeah. and no one bothered to do it. And I, I did listen to the two and a half hour lighting live stream with the camera operators of Phantom Thread. And as far as I can gather, it was a collaborative process where Paul Thomas Anderson described the mood of the scene and they worked with the camera operator, the key grip and the um, one other guy who I forget um, to collaboratively make it look as best as it possibly could. So it's not like there was no cinematographer. It was that it was a team effort. This is a slight side tangent, but I find it very interesting that uh, to bring up uh, the podcast nemesis, Jean-Luc Godard, uh, he is a, you know, a socialist filmmaker who is like trying to promote these counterculture ideas and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's like, but you're not really a communist filmmaker or a socialist filmmaker, are you? And then my question to myself was like, what would communist or like socialist filmmaking look like? And this is an example of that. Of <laughs> there is not someone in charge. It's a group decision, a group making decisions. And obviously, like PTA is still the director. But theoretically, you, I think it would be possible to have a group directed film. Maybe in the future, this can be uh, explored it, it- more. Well, it's possible, but according to that podcast, it was one of those things where, you know, the crew would come up with an idea on how to light or frame the scene and Paul Thomas Anderson would hate it and shoot it down. So even without a cinematographer, there is still this role of somebody who has final say. 
Oh yes, but it's very it's vitally important. I'm just saying, like, if you wanted to, I think this this film is a step in the direction of, like, some people said, oh, you're gonna you're killing the job of the cinematographer. Directors are gonna be more likely to get rid of that position now, and I don't think that's the case. Um, no, because directors like their cinematographers and like working with them. Well, but, when you compare. Th- you know, this is a proof of concept thread. that it is possible to to do something a bit more kind of in like a groupthink kind of way. Yeah. Well, you also just got to go ahead and let's be fair to Robert Elswood. You know, he still shoots movies. So you got to compare Phantom Thread to, you know, the stuff he does. Uh, he just did King of Staten Island. Oh. <laughs> They're on the uh, same level. <laughs> I suppose. What really is the difference Never between watched PT that and Judd Apatow? I Neither did I. Maybe, hey, maybe it's well shot. Yeah, maybe. We don't know. We uh, don't know. But he, what's his best shot? Is this his best shot film? Like, overall? I think so. Because I'd I really say do. so. I mean, Nick hasn't seen anything else, but I, I know he's seen <laughs> I know he's seen screenshots from other PTA films at the very least. Um, Punch Drunk Love looks pretty nice. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's probably a three-way tie. Well, the, the top contenders are probably there'll be blood the master in this the i like punch so love a lot as well i um, you know i am not a fan of the master but i can at the very least admit that film is gorgeously shot it really is damn punch Drunk love is too it's not as like you know it's quirky aw. kind of it's yeah there's never like one of those shots where like oh there's there's no equivalent to the this shot of freddie quell hanging over the side of the boat in the master that one amazing shot you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah but punch drunk love is really consistently well shot i love the lens flares in punch drunk love i want to say like punch drunk love is anxiety wes anderson because it's very like <laughs> yeah, very specifically right. framed the camera moves in very particular ways it has, a, it has a very particular color palette as well it is a very blue movie. But yeah, no, I do think this is his best shot film, especially the lighting is so good in this movie. It's so soft. Mm. Mm. It, everyone kind of glows. I, I wrote that down. I wrote. Let's see. Let's see. Let's get the exact words from um, Nick Johnson uh, yesterday afternoon. Glowy, glowy, bright color. I, I he wrote glowy bright color in crayon with a smiley face, so he knew it was very Yeah, funny. there's there it says love mom at the bottom too, which I found interesting. <laughs> the word color is submerged in a puddle of peanut butter. <laughs> I like the cinematography in the way that um they, they do movement in this film. It kind of like floats. It's like a it's like a it like floats through the scene. And you can't see my hands because they haven't figured out how to record the zooms yet. But you just kind of do this and it's like flows through the doorway. And like it is particularly corner. in it's the like beginning. Very, there's a lot of like yeah. it's going around. The it's house. very patient. Yes. Very but then when it stops, when it stops and it sits still, like the one that comes to mind for me, especially is the I think it's the first the first time he meets first time he meets Alma at the uh, restaurant thing or wherever she works. And it's locked down. Every camera placement feels like very much a part of the scene. Like, oh, it's almost like it's its own character. And it feels like it just fits into the scene so snugly. Is that what you were talking about when you said that Alma's camera shots are... You said something earlier before we started recording about her shots. 
like he had a note that I didn't really get. And I feel like that's what the note was. And I suddenly understand it anyway. No, yes. that, that, this, that is, that's a different, that's for when we okay. discuss the editing but, of the film. But yes, I have a lot be- of notes about the editing in the beginning of this film. I recommended this film sort of on the basis of its editing. I, I said it was worthwhile for that. And I, I hope mm-hmm. I was correct in that recommendation. Yeah. So, but no, in the very beginning of the film, the, the camera is moving around everywhere. It's just constantly looking around and exploring the world of Reynolds Woodcock. And it's kind of like very quickly paced. The first 15 minutes of this film fly by and you, you get to the part with Alma and then the camera kind of stops and locks down, like you said. And that's, Wow, I didn't think about that, but that's that's a, a very good choice of like emphasizing that moment is like the first it's essentially the uh the inciting incident of the film, the meeting. Essentially. And it feels like a part of that scene. Like we feel like we're in that scene. I don't I don't know how I don't know why. You know, I gotta explain these things to Nathan and then maybe Nathan will explain it to me. But it just the camera just feels a part of the mm-hmm. scene. The scene where they meet, that first scene in the hotel room is both one of the greatest like first uh interactions between like a romantic couple in film meet cute and i think it might be one of my favorite scenes ever like it's just everything about <laughs> it that is scene a very works good so scene. well i love that i love that uh what would that be called a pan yes a pan that pan shot where she's like she keeps like looking back at him and she's like, I think we are like a POV, but it's panning and then it like stops like in the doorway and she just like walks in. It kind of felt a little Wes Anderson to me because it was like very symmetrical. But I found that shot so interesting because it's like we're kind of like it's kind of like we're staring at this chick as she's like staring at us. And I don't know. This is a very good scene. That seems very it's well. Also, done. The camera's kind of a POV. Jacob, of, did you listen uh, to the podcast? I did, yes. So one of the things that's very interesting about I've listened that, to it uh, a few times actually yeah. over a couple of years. Oh, so one of the things that is very interesting about that scene in particular is that um, Daniel Day Lewis had insisted beforehand, um, him and the girl Vicky Crapes, who plays Alma, had met in a in like a casting thing, and then once the decision to cast her was finalized, Daniel Day Lewis was adamant in that he did not want to see her again until that scene was filmed. So that is another reason I think why the, the, the scene is very powerful is because you have Vicky Crapes who's playing this. She's a brand new actress in this new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and she is rightfully intimidated because she's fit sharing her very first scene with Daniel Day-Lewis, legendary actor Daniel Day-Lewis. And one thing that I heard from the um, the lighting thing was that her trip was real um they it was i think it was it might have been a dolly track that they were had set up for the next scene that she tripped over and she got very very red blushed with that and they kept it in but uh no that it, it's it's fantastically it's a it's a great it's the first time the movie like you said this is the first time the movie really slows down and one thing that i feel like we have to say because jacob i know you value this just as much as i do this is a fantastic food movie Oh, <laughs> this you movie get, get this movie alone of cooking that's important yes that, a good mu- food that movie thing she made that thing she made him at the end looked really omelet, good it was like a, I, it was uh like a 
mushroom omelet. I hate mushrooms. I hate mushrooms, and I wanted to tear that I thing hated up. mushrooms <laughs> until I saw this movie. It made me want to try them, and now I love mushrooms. Which is so ironic. <laughs> won't, won't spoil that for you, but... Yeah, I already well, did. Hopefully you blurred of. that well, out. My, my favorite scene in the movie is similar to um, uh, Jacob's. It's the scene where they fight where Alma had told everybody to leave so she could prepare the special thing the, the for him. Asparagus. The asparagus. The asparagus looks delicious, and I feel like there's one thing that we have yet to talk about regarding this movie. This movie is hilarious. It's, this movie it's darkly. Is, kind of. I wouldn't <laughs> say hilarious, but it, in I, that I, scene especially, Daniel Day-Lewis is hilarious. The asparagus scene? When he's like, Am, am I am I an enemy troop dropped on foreign soil? Do you have a gun? Show me your gun. I want to see your gun. <laughs> All over asparagus cooked in, in butter instead of oil or something. <laughs> he it the wrong. She cooked the asparagus the wrong way. Like he, he's a child. He Reynolds is Woodcock a child. Is a man child. And he's a man child. This is one of this is all of the great. I've said it before on the podcast. All the great romantic films are deviance of romance like it's not like they meet they're happy they they fall apart and they get back together at the end it's always like some big conflict movies like in the mood for love where they don't even end up in the end or mm-hmm. uh, and this is one of the few examples of, like one of the truly great romantic films where they end up in the end and they end <laughs> up they end up to they end up together in the end because of some fucked up reasons but <laughs> Yeah, thing. I did. Oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna say that's just why I, I, I that's why I named this file uh, Daniel Day Lewis fetish porn. Well, you know that's the thing is that this movie, like I said before, it's a Hitchcock romance. Um, it's very Hitchcock. I feel like in the way that it, it, its presentation. Um, but yeah, towards the end, when you start to see it, it's it's like it's obvious who he is from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those movies that I think is fantastic on a rewatch, because once you understand what Reynolds Woodcock looks for in people romantically, Alma, this decision for Alma is so much more like realized. One, she is met. He meets her as a waitress. Literally, the first thing that she does is serve him food. Alma, the Vicky Crepes, the woman who plays Alma, she is beautiful, but she is not conventionally beautiful. She's very matronly. And they even say that when they're trying on the dress where Reynolds Woodcock, you know, is taking her dimensions or whatever. And then he like leaves and then Cyril's like, oh, you're you know, you're just this kind of woman. You have a little belly. He likes a little bit. One of my great lines is you have no breasts. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. It's my job to give you some. <laughs> one of the little one of the little things they do, too, is like uh, when they first meet and he he gives her the long ass food order. And then he's like, well, he's like, do you remember? She's like, of course. And then he like takes the thing from yeah. her. And she's like, well, then we'll then. it's like some. It's just uh, it's a thing where like I feel like the first time you watch it, it comes off as like this guy's just a root like a really particular. And he's like being kind of a prick. but. I guess watching it now, it's like he's like pretty much fetishizing the situation. It's, it's like ask, it's he's like it's the equivalent of asking your waitress, can I get the toast without the crust? He's a child. He's a giant child. And he wants to make sure that the woman in his life can attend to all of his childish needs. And I just love the little cap on the end of that scene is that she gives him her number and, and it's written for the hungry boy. 
<laughs> for the little... hungry boy. <laughs> so, you know, the hungry boy will forever be, uh, I'll either think of Daniel Day-Lewis in this film or the dog Jack, of course, who is of course. a very oh, hungry boy. Oh, very, of very course. hungry boy. He would literally eat anything in the garbage. <laughs> very hungry boy. <laughs> uh, also important to note, um, the score is amazing. It's probably my favorite PTA score. Uh, Johnny PTA. Greenwood, longtime collaborator yep. with uh, PTA. Johnny Greenwood, a.k.a. the lead guitarist for the band Radiohead, which I always find that interesting that Paul Thomas Anderson has the creative clout to just That's be like, hey, so funny. stop being in Radiohead, Radiohead for five minutes and score my movie. And Johnny Greenwood's like, yes, sir. It's like Jim Jarmusch getting RZA. Oh, my God. You know, RZA's directing a movie with Ethan Hawke that's coming out soon. What the hell? That is just a sentence I just did never expected to hear oh. said ever. He also did You Were Never Really Here by um, yeah. Lynn Ramsey. Um, I didn't yeah. know that. There's not a few. There Will Be Blood one. I always thought he did the Punch Drunk Love one, which if there's any score that can contend with the Phantom Thread score, it's the Punch Drunk Love score. That score is incredible. And it's half you, mean the in term, you mean in terms of Paul Thomas Anderson movies? Yeah. Or just oh, I was gonna say I thought in you Paul just meant, like Anderson in general. Movies. I'm like what? Yeah, well, Punch no, Drunk Love. It, clearly, the obvious choice for best score of all time. Clearly. Well, you heard it here I, first, folks. Part of me wants to say Punch Drunk Love gets it because half of the reason that movie works so well is the score. But that's besides the point. Yeah. There's an interesting thing with the score in Paul Thomas Anderson films is that you could almost accuse the film of having too much score of if you remember back to our 1917 review which is for the listeners at home still our least watched youtube video uh, is it really yes which i think chandler will find good i'm glad people aren't watching that movie um <laughs> but with I'm that no one will see her more about it chandler's complaint with that was that there was too much to score informing the narrative all the time and I get the feeling from Phantom Thread, the score is there constantly in the film. But it's never informing the emotional No, it's, it's this weird, it's like the exception to the rule. Yeah. Because you can't really say it's not informing because it does enhance, but it's in, it's it's its own unique voice completely. I think I, it's not informing, it's, it's supporting. A bit of both. Like, I think it's, we're playing semantics here and it... The thing with the score is that it's so unique. Like it's not a typical like orchestral score that you would you would expect. And because it is so unique, it's its own like character within the film. Almost like people say like settings can be characters. Yeah. The score is a care. It, it has personality in and of itself instead of just being generic score that's underlaid everything. Well, that's I that's said the, the cam. I said the camera is a character earlier, too. <laughs> Well, it's the same thing that it happens with Punch Drunk Love, where the, the score is so great because it's a bunch of really weird little instruments played at incorrect time signatures. And it, it it's like it's like being in a room of 50 different people shouting at you, which is what Punch Drunk Love is. It's 90 minutes of that. Whereas this, it is... Um, starring Adam Sandler. Yeah, <laughs> starring Adam Sandler. Uh, it was actually funny because I showed Punch Drunk Love to my girlfriend a few months ago and I'm like this is nothing like Uncut Gems it's not as anxiety inducing <laughs> and then I watched it and I'm like this is more anxiety inducing <laughs> than Uncut Gems but Phantom Thread does the same thing where it takes all these instruments that are pretty um, are, are pretty intertwined with this era and this aesthetic you know the very calm 
reverby pianos, but he plays these like weird little tunes that kind of go off into these darker sounds that I think is reflective of the movie as a whole, because on the surface, it looks like the most posh movie, the most chic movie ever made. But chic. the more what <laughs> fucking word is that? Don't say fucking chic to me. Another but the funny more and the deeper you get into the movie, it takes these weird, dark little turns that you're like, OK, it's still it never goes like, you know, like Parasite complete 180. It still stays in that wheelhouse, but it changes the little things that make it uh, like a twisted version, a, a gothic romance, like you said. It's interesting the way that PTA, I've always, my complaint with him is that he his films kind of lose their narrative focus thrust towards the, the second to third act of the film. And I don't necessarily think that's in, like, that is the case here, too, to, to some extent. Wow. I think this, this film, no, no, no. Look, that was a criticism for There Will Be Blood, and yet I didn't call it a criticism. It was just okay. a note that it could have been better. I agree, though. Um, there will be blood. Like, we were starting from a nine, and they're like, this could have been a little better. Yeah. Um, but here, I think he deals with it the best. And th- this film is interestingly structured, and I just want to make a quick comment and then ask the two of you to maybe, how's it structured in the editing? But it's interesting that the first 20 minutes of this film, before he meets Alma is very conventional in terms of story structure. It is a like day in the life, 100%. Of, like you go through the normal everyday life of Reynolds Woodcock and it's setting up all these different things. And yet, and then you get to a very clear, clearly defined inciting incident, which PTA doesn't always have. Mm-hmm. And you get to that point and then slowly the film decides to get more and more convoluted and twisted and like writhing its its claws into you and it's the structure in the, the everything after that is a bit less hard it it's a bit harder to kind of pin down as to like where and how the film is being put together Yes. Okay. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening to the Split Take podcast. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you're right because it, it the, the the like first hour and a half of this movie it does feel like a very clear three act structure, which you know the climax is the big asparagus fight, and then they get married, and then it's all happily ever after. But then there's still another thirty minutes, um, which I I still can't really put into words why I I think it still works, um, but I think it's because it goes the extra mile that most romance movies do. Where, you know, most romance movies, it is, you know, they meet, they fall in love, big conflict. They either get over it or they don't married happily ever after. They do all that. But I think PTA doesn't like the idea that marriage is the thing that solves everything. And, you know, because that then brings us into like the last act, um, which I know quick side note. This is also another reason I love this movie is the sound design is great, especially I was going to say that eating scenes. Yes. The first the, breakfast the, with the, Alma. the breakfast scene. Oh. Yep. It's funny because so loud. It's the, like eating with Keith. Oh my god. It's, it's a very subjective sound design moment because you're almost hearing it from his perspective. Well, it's hype because beyond real. When, when they're on their they also own? don't cut at all. They just hold. Yeah. On that shot of Daniel Day Lewis reacting to it. When they're on their honeymoon and Alma's eating things off the fork and like scraping her teeth off the side of the fork, I almost made the exact same face that 
Woodcock was making. Because that is one of my biggest pet peeves is Loudy. Absolutely disgusting. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I can't really justify that last chunk, but I do like it because I think that's really where you explore what it is Woodcock is looking for in people. And, you know, especially with the, the, the twist, spoiler alert, I'll get into the spoiler um, that Alma essentially poisons him when he's being a naughty boy, which <laughs> I think is really fucked up. But I think it's very interesting. Um, it's it's like it goes that one step further to where PTA in those last few scenes dispels any notion that this is going to fail down the line because we see that next step that is always ignored in these movies and they figure out their issues. Um, but yeah, I can't justify it and whether or not this is necessary, but I do think that is what makes this movie great is taking that extra step. I think it's, I think it's a five act structure, but I won't, I won't dive into to the reasons why you can just look into it. <laughs> Piece it together. The evidence I especially is love this, the stare down scene. Uh, that Jacob and I discussed on the, Snapchat. The one I sent, yeah. I sent it to Chandler yes. as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the scene when she's making him the 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 fetish meal, the Last Supper. Like, yes, all the little cutaways to the food, and then like those long lens shots of them just staring at each other is just, it's 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 magical, but it's also just so f- something about it is so funny. I was laughing so hard during that scene for some reason. I. It's Even though so it's kind of devilishly morbid, romantic. It's so and morbid. Weird. And then she's like, I want you on your on your uh I want you on the meek. floor. Almost dead. And then she doesn't I love the little bit of acting here is she doesn't smile. She just stares at him until he swallows the food. And then she gives him the most warm <laughs> smile ever. Yes. And they it's kiss. So that's one of my favorite strange. lines in any movie ever is kiss me my dear before i'm sick i love i also love the the ending the like the very ending the mm-hmm. one the reveal the film is kind of structured around alma is confessing or talking about their relationship to someone mm-hmm. and you eventually figure out that's the doctor and then at the very end you the camera just goes out a little bit and you see that reynolds has been there the entire time on her on her lap <laughs> sick and, and my favorite is the last line of the film is uh Oh shit! Now I'm blanking. The moment I needed it, it's like uh, something. That, and I'm getting hungry, or <laughs> right? Like it, it all it circles back to food in the end. It's great. Anyway, so I, what I love. Say? Well, I was gonna say I love when he sees the doctor for the second time at the honeymoon, the ski resort, or whatever. And he's like, he's like apologizing for his behavior, and then he, then the doctor is like, "Oh, it's all fine. Are you feeling any better?" Then Reynolds is like, "Didn't I tell you to fuck off?" <laughs> And I love, I love how it, the shot tracks out of the room, and you just see the doctor in the background, like, "Well, this fucking guy, like, he's still walking behind him, though." Ah, uh, it's great. PTA movies are always full of those scenes that, you know, from a visual standpoint, I'm always like, "Oh, for me, this movie, it's the party scene, the New Year's Eve party," hmm. that which great. I think is one of the best shots of his whole filmography. I love how he cuts the sound, especially when they come back to it later. The the last one, the the dream, the future, when Alma's talking, discussing their future, that when they revisit it and they're dancing in the middle of it and, and they all 
the yeah. other dancers come in. That's mm-hmm. like the icing on top of the cake. It's probably mm-hmm. one of the best shots in the film. Okay, as far as performance goes, uh, I know Nick can't answer this, but Reynolds Woodcock or Daniel Plainview? Remember, I watched Daniel Plainview in high school and then got bored and turned it off. Cringe. Uh, I'd probably say Daniel Plainview. Ladies and gentlemen, I've crossed half our state to be here tonight to tell you <laughs> that I'm an old Daniel Day Lewis is actually I'm going to go with Lincoln. His best performance is Gooby. <laughs> um, I I really don't know. Like I, God, it's uh, uh. For me, I it's say, I want to say Phantom Thread. Daniel Day Lewis performance is so good that it's well, yeah. It's just a you've hit a threshold. They're just all so good. There's no point in even ranking them. It's just they're just all number one. I will go with Reynolds Woodcock because Daniel Plainview is a myth, not a man, which is interesting, and he he brings that myth to life. But Reynolds Woodcock. I feel you can read more into him through the performance. Well, although I will say that that's part of the strength of Daniel Plainview as a character is that he's such a brick wall of a human being that when you finally do make these little breakthroughs and get through the other side, it's very fascinating. But I just love, I think more than any other Daniel Day-Lewis movie, every scene that he's in, he is the sun and every other actor is just in its orbit. He's yeah. hilarious and yeah, is my favorite. I this this film is so interesting, particularly uh you're asking me, Daniel Day Lewis and, and There Will Be Blood or Phantom Thread, and I think I'm gonna also say Phantom Thread. <laughs> and I'm like, why do I why do I love this film so much? And it's something where like if you had shown me this film three years ago, or like four years ago. I probably wouldn't like it as much. Still a good film, but mm-hmm. it 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 hits none of the genre tropes or stuff like that or on a broad level. It does on a more kind of morbid yeah uh, level. But it's just so interesting. Like a film about a dressmaker. <laughs> that that is like my favorite PTA film essentially. That and Punch Drunk Love. See, that's the thing is that would you say this is your second favorite PTA movie? It, it's a tie. I'm just going to say it's a tie between this and Punch Drunk Love. Because that's the way I feel. This most recent rewatch, I'm like, I got to watch Inherent Vice again because this might be my favorite. I love it. And we're, there was actually a question on the Criterion subreddit the other day about ranking of PTA's filmography. Mm-hmm. And uh, Phantom Thread was like solidly in the middle for a lot of people. So I think we're... We're outliers in terms of love of this film. Not that people don't like it. It's it's a very I think well it's, respected I think, film. I honestly think it's one of those things that most people that would say it's middle tier have only seen it that one time in 2017. Because that was the same way where I saw it. And I'm like, this is really good. Not great, mm-hmm. but really, really good. And then I watched, I've seen it twice since then. One for the podcast, one about a year ago. And this most recent rewatch is when I finally am like, okay, five stars. One of my favorite PTAs. I can't, I'm not willing to say it's better than Inherent Vice yet, but it's close. It's getting there. <laughs> but I do love Inherent Vice, which we will get to. So we will. There's one 
really great little through line because all like the through the plot through lines of this film are very obscure and hard to follow like the plot makes sense but the the connective tissues between why reynolds is doing things and why alma's doing things is kind Mm -hmm. of hidden and one of the things i really love is that she gets the idea to poison him from you see earlier in the film she's going mushroom hunting with the the cook in the house the housekeeper and so that's one part of that. And even earlier in the film, she explains that Reynolds goes through these episodes of where he gets sick, like just by himself after like working himself. Yeah. In, essentially. And so it's a great little like it doesn't even show you like the thought process of Alma thinking it through. It just kind of shows you that he gets sick after uh, working a lot and that Alma has like this tender moment of she takes care of him. And then later on. Doesn't explain her how she thought of it, but it just cuts to her poisoning him. And it's not immediately obvious that she's trying to replicate that artificially to put him back into that like state yeah. where she, she was he was compliant with her taking care of him. So just the, the little subtle, very subtle through lines of the film like that is what makes it really great. Oh, uh, we also haven't talked about Leslie Manville. Oh, we haven't. Cyril, what do you think of Cyril? She is, she is great. Cyril, so Cyril, Got some fucking sharp eyes, dude. Oh my god, I do she not, I do moves. not want to be reprimanded by that lady. I'm like, dear God. Cyril is is a very interesting character because she's not as present as Alma or Red or Reynolds, but there's a lot that you can read into. I feel like just the overall vibe I get from Cyril is that being. Reynolds's sister is a full-time job for her. <laughs> sister and business manager, essentially. Yeah. And especially at the end, which I always forget about this scene when they have their kid and they, you know, leave it with Cyril and then they leave. And there's that one shot of her just sort of like rocking the thing back and forth. And she looks at the baby in a very specific way where I'm just like, oh no. This this is your life. You are you are his keeper. <laughs> you're his second mother she's she's very kind of cold to alma but at the same time she states outright that she likes alma she's fond yeah. of her and you get the feeling that that's true like she's not being because well, later when when um you know reynolds comes in and starts bitching about alma and then she says you know i'm quite fond of her that's it's one of those moments where you're like oh okay that's you have there is a person in there she's a bit more of an enigma but there is some really interesting characterization going on there. Yeah, and I lo- I love when every time Reynolds tries to raise his voice to Cyril. <laughs> Don't pick a fight with me. I'll go right through you. <laughs> great line. I'll go right through you. She's a she's a great presence, especially early on in the movie when she's almost like his his cleaner. Mm-hmm. When you know the with the with the girlfriend that he has at the beginning of the movie, and you know she's like, "What are we gonna do about her? We can give her a dress." <laughs> But she's like already ready to sweep her under the rug. It's pretty great. Mm. And oh, another really great little subtle moment in the film is Alma goes to Reynolds room like they they had. It's implied they had sex. And then like a few nights later, she goes to his room and knocks on the door and she wants to go in. But he's like, I'm working. And then Cyril comes up with with tea. Yeah. And he's like, oh, that's just what I needed. And then later on in the film, they're at the house, the, the cottage. 
And Alma is trying to be like Cyril as someone who just can know. She feels like she knows him well enough that she can just bring him tea and then mm-hmm. he'll appreciate it. But he doesn't because he's <laughs> Reynolds Woodcock and berates her for bringing him tea at the wrong moment. He's like, the tea is leaving, but the distraction <laughs> is staying far longer. <laughs> Yes, the tea is leaving, but the disruption is staying right here. (laughs) So one of the themes of the film, I think you could say this film is about the artistic process of someone uh, of an artist who gives themselves to their work. And how do you find love? Like essentially like divide your loyalties in life between something you give everything to which is sewing in his case or it could be filmmaking in pta's case because i think there's some very he's writing from personal experience in a very kind of abstracted way um but then finding making room in your life for someone else someone else who is going to support that creative work and i think there's some interesting things like looking at the film just from the perspective of what is reynolds woodcock's uh his like creative process and like how that like feeds into like the theme of the film. I don't know. Do you find any like relation to the, like the way you devote yourself to filmmaking in, in the way that Reynolds Woodcock devotes himself to sewing? Um, not in the way that it comes out in, uh, you know, uh, malicious character traits, like, you know, being a prick or, um, (laughs) being, you know, uh, too too pick too picky i appreciate the way i mean i appreciate the sentiment of like you know where he like he wants to like clear his mind like in the morning he wants just clear and utter like i'm working on the thing no distractions i appreciate the sentiment of like wanting to just devote yourself to a project that much but the way it comes out <laughs> through the character is like this guy's a douchebag um it's like being obsessive about your work but taken to the nth degree yeah so i mean so yeah i i appreciate the sentiment but there's better ways to do it dude you know what bud yeah go get a studio why are you even working in the at the kitchen table anyway go work in the go upstairs it's interesting that you brought it up because i actually thought about that recently uh and i go to work at my job where I don't have a lot to do at my job. What I essentially do at my job is that I, I inspire myself with a lot of filmmaking things, podcasts, director commentaries, you know, interviews and stuff like that. It's, I inspire myself. And then as you both know, I I'm in the process of writing something right now and I'll get into the writing mood and it'll take me like an hour or two to get there. But once I'm there, I can do like, six to ten pages in one sitting and i feel invigorated and i feel creative and i feel like everything that i'm writing is exactly the way i want it and then i go home and i'll continue this 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 attitude with more like stuff like that and then every day pretty much every day i go to visit my girlfriend and then when i do immediately when i'm there with her when i'm out of that like environment i feel like a completely different person i feel like me not saying that it's not who I am, but I'm like, oh, I'm no longer this person who's constantly thinking about the thing that they're writing, thinking about ways to improve it, thinking about the creative process. I'm just I'm reset back to let's just hang out, you know, two people 
it it's interesting that he feels this way and i do think that it it has a lot to do it's something that you know when, whenever you like create things in general i think this speaks to people whether or not you're a painter filmmaker poet whatever um and i do like that he establishes that they're kind of two different worlds but i also like that he's optimistic enough to say that you can let people into this world you don't need to put up those walls you just need to find a way that this these lives can coexist and i do think ultimately the film suggests that they can maybe not directly maybe alma is amused but he's not she's not a partner um but i do think that it does establish that these two things kind of have a yin and yang informing each other, which leads me to my question for both Nick and Jacob. Uh, do you think this relationship is toxic? I mean, I, in in the literal sense, yes. Well, there is a literal poison element, but do you there think is a these literal people, toxicity factor? Yes. Do you think these people are not made for each other? N- no. The answer to that question is no. They're they're made for the for each other in their own unique. There's only way. two people in the world that have a fetish to which you poison, you, you know, you jerk off with a knife, uh, as you will. What the fuck um, are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> that metaphor just no, belly I... flopped. <laughs> No, it didn't think about it. You really got to think about it. You got to get deep down. I don't know where this knife goes. (laughs) That's the point. How does one jerk off with a knife? (laughs) Hand in hand? You don't. You don't. That's the. the, That's the. Jerk off with barbed wire. Maybe barbed wire is a better. (laughs) I think I think you meant to say the term bleach lubricant, I think is what you're going. It's. Is that what I was going for? I don't know if you. I just talking about the idea that it. I mean, they both get off uh, in a way that requires potential damage to a certain human being. Um, and I think they're made for each other. I agree with Jacob. I think they're both fucking weird uh, people that need to talk to someone and they need help. Yeah, they're uh, they have the re- relationship has serious issues. Serious issues. This is not a good. This is not a good. Both of these people, Alma, it's much less obvious, but both of these people have serious issues themselves, and they've they've found the one in a million kind of compatibility of those two issues that kind of like create a harmony of negative. You said yin and yang, and I feel like both sides of the yin and yang are black. (laughs) Yin and yang. Yang Yang. Infinite Yang. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like balance, still a yin and yang, a balance of, yeah, no. of things, but <laughs> not good. Gas and water. Like another, like another in math, se- two negatives make a positive. It's true. Another scene that I that I thought was really powerful that for some reason we haven't talked about yet was the part when the when he's like, it's right after he gets poisoned the first time. Um, and the mother pops up in the room and it's like the same, she's wearing the same outfit as the picture he has. Oh yeah. And she's just like staring there. And I think, I don't remember if he's talking to her, or if he's thinking something and we're hearing it, but he's just like staring at her. And then there's the, the, the sequence when Alma comes in and is walking around and they like, don't, it's just silent as she's like doing things in the room. And the mother's also there. And I just thought that was like a really, 
And then, you know, and then when she's done and she comes to take care of him, the mother's like gone now. So I kind of, sh- I saw that as like a, you know, a way of showing, you know, he sees her as like a potential caretaker yeah. fetish thing. Remind me um, of that shot from fan or uh, portrait of a lady on fire. Oh, I was, yeah. was going to say, I wrote down specifically that this, those two are, are very, they're kind of similar. They're both romantic films. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I had some other connection there. Artistry and love. They're both about yeah. art. Both require love. the creation of an art piece. Yes. Yeah, no. Both have great scores. Anyway, wow. the mother, the like the symbolism of the mother and what she represents in Reynolds Woodcock, Reynolds Wo- Reynolds Woodcock's life, um, is still kind of an enigma to me. I, I think there's definitely some like baggage there from his childhood, and I'm not always sure exactly what it is, but that's that's like one of the the wonderful little mysteries of the film that keep making me curious to go back and, and kind yeah. of like dig in to yeah. how to, did you guys when you guys first watched the movie how did you react to the scene when he's explaining that he puts like his mom in all the suits oh that was cute was it a, did you react as cute or did you react as like mortified like this is not okay well because no, that's how i re- i was like whoa dude that was like big red flag well he, he he's just like his... saying it so nonchalantly <laughs> well it's that that sentiment isn't necessarily as creepy to me as him when um she asks he asks alma do you have a picture of your mother and she's like no and then he gets really serious he's like, he's like always have me. it close carry it with you always and that that part i'm like oh but they just you know, cut away too yeah they don't yeah. even let that as far as like done. sewing things into the garments i'm like oh that's you know i like that because it's 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 one definitive way that he can make everything a part of him all of his mm-hmm. creations are inevitably yeah. his. And then the great little addition to that is Alma purposely takes Taking out them all out of yeah. the, the one dress. <laughs> great, great. Asserting her dominance great, yeah. in this very kind of subtle, like Reynolds will never know, never know. And they don't, they, yeah, they don't, they don't pay a lot of attention to that. They like skim through that. Like she just takes it out, like as part of another scene. It's so quick, but it's interesting. Interesting character choices. Good movie. One of the things that I think works really great about the film, pacing wise, is that Mm -hmm. because it's kind of not flat, but a lot of it's uh, the way the film generates tension, I suppose, is that particularly near the beginning of the film, when Alma is first introduced into Reynolds's life, is you're never really sure on a moment to moment basis whether Reynolds is charmed by her or getting annoyed with her. And you're never really sure whether is this the moment that's going to set him on edge and they're going to have like an actual fight because there's moments where she's saying things and he's just giving the, her the stare. And then after a little bit, they both smile at each other and they go back to like being warm because mm-hmm. you see it's very important in the beginning of the film. You see that that Reynolds can be very like a very sweet man. And he's charming. And you you as an audience want to see that sign of Reynolds more and then you get more and then you only get more asparagus man as the (laughs) asparagus man is my favorite superhero yeah well yeah that's what keeps it interesting is because he never goes full villain he never goes full man child especially you know those moments where he's at his weakest he's very affectionate he's very grateful for the people around him and then he gets better and then he's off to being a big old baby again uh yeah it's a great film. I saw this at the in the theater with my mom, actually, at the loft. It was a good experience. Back I saw the, it uh, back in the days the when theaters existed. 
Oh, yeah, well, those are the more throwback. How's the loft doing in Corona time? That makes me sad. Are they doing all right? They're doing there? fine. They do um, curbside concessions so you can buy popcorn and stuff on oh, oh, yeah. Fridays and Saturdays. And they, they drop it off in your car. They pull up. They do. I think I, I texted you. This is really great. Um, I messaged the, our group about this a while back is that they let you rent out the theater for like a couple hours and it's fairly cheap. So they're doing fine. They're doing fine. I'm just so you're saying is that this year, 2020, we are still going to be able to see the Star Wars holiday special at the loft. It is a yearly tradition and the I will Star be, Wars holiday special. I will be very upset if I can't watch it again this year. Starring four years Mark in a row. Campbell. I I can't let that streak fail. I want to do it this year. I want to see it. I want to get drunk and yell at Star Wars. I, I would love to watch it. I thought you were gonna propose that we we rent out the theater to watch Gooby. I would also watch Gooby. I would also watch The Room. I honestly, they, they've done. I saw a screening of The Room with Greg uh, Cicero. Cicero, mm. whatever his name. If we are going to rent the theater, I genuinely think it should be what? No, it I was gonna say it genuinely uh, okay. should be Gooby. <laughs> oh. Gooby more important than our film. I feel like. You could do both. The, the legacy of Gooby has been built so high up without us ever seeing it. I feel like anything less than a movie theater at this point would be be doing a disservice to its legacy. Could be right about Literally, that. Literally, a blockbuster went out of business. Shut up. Blockbuster. Okay. Oh, no, wait, no. I thought, I thought you were going to try to discourage me from No, no, no. Tell the origin story no, of Gooby. Was, we've, we've brought it the up origin, The origin story is, I, I believe I am in high school still. Uh, my brother is five years older than me. Uh, he was still living with my parents and I at the time. Blockbuster. This was around the time blockbusters were shutting down, so a lot of blockbusters were literally just getting the movies and throwing them in trash bags and just throwing them away. So there was just you could go. So my brother's hearing around school like, bro, we got to go to the blockbuster like and just dig in the dumpster. So my brother goes. And uh, lo and behold, he goes to the local Blockbuster garbage can and there's like five f- like full fucking glad bags of DVD ca- pearl cases. And uh, he brought them all home and Gooby was uh, in the case. <laughs> so the what you're saying bag. is that Gooby is literally a dumpster okay, baby. But how did it end up with you? <laughs> literally a Blockbuster dumpster baby. <laughs> <laughs> guys where gooby originated it's a garbage i don't know if this is technically incriminating i think they threw it away and we can take that anyways that is that is how uh we came in possession i'm not sure there's anyone left from blockbuster to sue you i remember i remember the day very specifically getting home from school with a giant pile of dvds on the ground and finding gooby in the pile and like in inquiring about how fucking creepy it was and gooby so that's that's how it came to be on your shelf that is how we got i found gooby in a garbage can somehow we got to gooby adds adds even more to the mystique of the gooby of the gooby uh, take cinema lore has it's It's gonna really add it's gonna really add to the split take uh gooby fanfics i'm excited (laughs) to read some of those we can write a novel at the end of this about the story of gooby and gooby and i the story we of the, actually have to do a Gooby episode. What you guys have to decide it's, on? It's like, gonna be the what, it's gonna be the number one pick. Monu- it's gonna be Vertigo what, and Gooby. <laughs> what monument film? Like what monument number episode is is Gooby 
going to be? Is it 100? Well, it's either 100 or vertigo. So 100 will be vertigo. No, it won't. There, there are more than 100 films. Uh, so cool. Give me an excuse to watch Gooby. Damn it, man. We can watch it sooner. We can do 75. In Gooby, they don't jerk off with a knife. Why are you bringing that? That was dead no on arrival. Ever <laughs> I thought I was really, I thought I was being really intelligent. Well, I, it turned into a good little run gag there, but yeah, I think that's, that's all my, Phantom my comments Thread. on Phantom Thread. I think that was a really good discussion. Phantom Thread, top two PTA movies. It's one of the, one of the best films last, last decade. I think Chandler and I both, didn't we both have it on our list? No, maybe. No, I'm not. I should be. It should. Well, I would say I would definitely reconsider my list after watching that film. I would have to go back and watch it again, but I think it is definitely one of the better films of the last decade that I have seen. Yeah, I can definitely say that. Uh, just waiting for more PTA in the uh, Criterion Collection. So. Oh man, dude, I'm so excited for my Irishman, bro. I've been waiting for this. We've been waiting for this, and it's here. And it's a little, you know, the cover's a little boring, but you I mean it's yeah. still pretty cool. Ghost Dog, it's still cool. It's I'm still is. excited for it. I'm gonna get Ghost Dog too, though. Just Ghost Dog is fucking great. You know, if it's, I do, I'm gonna watch it. If it's one of the regular Blu-ray cases, you could go into Photoshop and you can make your own Irishman Blu-ray it's case true. if you're really unhappy with it. You, you know what is quick, quick Irishman tangent? You know, it was something that was really fucking hilarious to me that I read on Twitter the other day mm. was that this this person reenacted a scene from the irishman just via text uh joe pesci introducing a 70 year old robert de niro <laughs> to uh harvey Keitel. hey come here take a look at this kid <laughs> that kid i was telling you about 70 year old <laughs> robert de niro ps2 graphics robert de niro <laughs> that kid i was PS- telling you about it does look like ps <laughs> The truck scene especially looks like PS2 graphics. Oh man, it's real. It's so funny though. You don't watch. It's, you don't watch the I Irishman for Robert De Niro. You watch it for Al Pacino and the ice cream. You watch it for Joe Pesci first off. Fuck him. <laughs> Fuck him. You motherfucking idiots. <laughs> and How Ray Romano. Dumb I also, can you be? <laughs> I also love the appearances of Ray Romano. This oh, has yeah. just become an Irishman discussion now. <laughs> I'm thinking about. I've been thinking a lot about um, 2019 movies lately. Gonna gonna rewatch. Hey, Joe Pesci. This is uh. That's a whole. My friend. uh, (laughs) My friend uh, Robert De Niro. Jesus Christ. I'm a I'm a lawyer. Just Kermit Uh, the Frog here. (laughs) Sounds nothing like that. He he wasn't scheduled to be a guest. It's me, man. But I bought bought the lighthouse. Yeah, you bought the lighthouse on Blu-ray. That I still I you know I watched it in the theater with with Brandon Sanju and haven't seen it since. I've seen still it. Need to rewatch it. I've seen it four times since I, the theater. I got another film from 2019 on Blu-ray too. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Ooh, Did you really? Yeah, that's a good yeah. one. Yeah, I was feeling it. That's a damn good film. Is is my current again? Never said I didn't favorite. like it. No, you didn't. You didn't. But it, it is as of right now. It is my second favorite Tarantino movie. Well, okay. I would say That's it's fine. pretty up there. I would say it's up there for it's me. Good. I think it's number three. It's number three for me. Jack, Jackie Brown and uh, and Glorious. Clear comps. Quinge. 
Is that it then? Is that the is that the Phantom Thread discussion? Yeah, yeah, no, we're we're done with that. Yeah. Pretty pretty clear we, we recommended it. Daniel Day Lewis, he's coming out of retirement. He's uh making a new film. Stars some of your favorite child actors. Um and, and the wacky antics they get in with their uh with 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 their child child care professor Jesus Daniel Day Lewis in <laughs> in Daniel Daycare. <laughs> I was gonna say uh daniel day lewis plays a baby in the new film <laughs> daniel's day out <laughs> daniel day lewis robs a bank in daniel day afternoon <laughs> <laughs> leslie manville plays the bank <laughs> oh my god in, in 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 the latest divorce comedy daniel day lewis uh, uh and Daniel Day Lewis's <laughs> latest. <laughs> Is that the wrong way? <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis has taken up a new profession in Daniel Day Job. <laughs> Daniel Day Job. <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis has joined the Beatles in the new film Daniel Day Tripper. <laughs> I was going to say, a hard Day Lewis. <laughs> That's a much better one. Hard a hard, a hard Daniel Day night is, is pretty good. <laughs> well, we'll have a in the in the vein of uh, being John Malkovich. We'll have another like self referential film where da- Daniel D. Lewis plays plays himself, and like one of the super fans uh, is trying to like get like find Daniel Day Lewis in his retirement and get them to be in their student film. Uh, and we'll call it in the mood for day lewis <laughs> stupid oh my god i don't even want to talk about the magnificent ambersons now <laughs> that's it that's it. it was the whole conversation that was the whole podcast i do i love this movie very posh episode yes period pieces two of them uh both have fashion as a uh interesting part of their film it's true uh but no uh, with Nick here, I was thinking that we should have we don't really have anywhere for the the potential uh, another one of the Daniel Day Lewis jokes. Okay, well, uh, let's hear it. I want to hear it. <laughs> MTV presents a new sequel to Punked, Ashton Kutcher in the Rye. That was it. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Ashton Kutcher in the Rye. I was like a catcher in the Rye thing. But that has nothing to I don't do know, with Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> I know. I was just coming. I was just, just making another, another uh, making another show out of someone's name. Clear comms, dude. Clear comms. All right, Jacob, continue. That was horrible. So we don't- <laughs> I was laughing to myself about it. I don't know. We don't Anyways, really have anywhere comms. for the the potential viewers to uh interact like there's not really a split take community which i feel like there needs to split be the option together. for for the uh split take discord yeah. yes so i think we should make a split take discord invite all of the the guest people who have been guest hosts and put the the open link up there on uh on our episodes for uh, uh the option for people to come in and uh and chat and 
tell us how we're wrong about all of our film it's opinions, true. some of which are our hot takes. You can take you can take film suggestions too, maybe. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, so some place for some more interaction would be nice. And can and the the subreddit profile picture can be of Gooby. <laughs> as as much as I love that, I think that's that's maybe scare too many people away. Jacob, c- Jacob, mm. can I p- can I pitch can I pitch to the fans of the podcast my my spinoff show idea? Yes, of course. We've discussed this before, and then, so. and then they can let you. Oh, you have on the show? No, no, with you. I just wanted to. Essentially, oh, yes, I was telling. Yes. I wanted to inform Chandler that this was not out of nowhere. Nick wasn't just butting Chan- in. So Chandler hasn't like, heard about this. Okay. So uh, uh, I don't remember how long ago this was. It was probably a week or two ago, two or three weeks ago at this point, probably. Um, I called Jacob in a random spurt of inspiration for a show spinoff of the Split Take podcast, and it is called uh, Split Decision. When I pitched it to Jacob, the idea was that maybe I would produce it as under the umbrella of the Split Take um, and Film Sync community, but it is a show where I um bring in two people that have opposite views on a film or a discussion point about film and then we just argue about it and it's so like the idea is like the pilot episode would be like i would bring chandler and jacob on and then we would discuss if raiders of the lost ark is a masterpiece or just okay and then we would hear both their arguments and uh make a show out of it and that was my idea so i guess it, make the discord so we can hear what they think of the idea <laughs> i can just i can just like copy paste the criterion discord because i think that's a pretty well formatted film discord but yeah sure you like the idea chandler what do you think i feel like that it would be after a while you'd be hard pressed for topics but i'm not against it but then it could just be i i i discuss i told jacob it could evolve into a thing where maybe each episode is a movie and we like go on letterboxd and contact like a five-star reviewer and a half-star reviewer oh just get random people oh that'd be epic maybe that's where it evolves to chandler versus the world is the first episode where i talk to every motherfucker who gave under the silver lake less than three stars (laughs) so i'm the first guest on my i think we could start it off as like a once a month kind of thing is like a make it like a kind of big production like prepare for it yeah and i'll like super over edit it and stuff and make it like an actual show thing perhaps start simple so we're not you're, you're not like taking on too much and then if, perhaps. You, if we wanna, maybe i, I think I it's a it. it's a fun idea we'll see i think it's a fun idea under the jackie boy films film sync umbrella you, you know who wanted to start a podcast with me hmm jacob who? you know who contacted me about starting a podcast is other chandler Ah, can you uh, guess what it's about? Other channel about uh, music. The the let's start a Weezer podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Can you call it Pod Curtain? That's actually a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I was worried that I don't know enough, so I was worried that was another one of Nick's uh, misfires. Essentially, Jacob, a, being a, a Weezer fan is a mental illness that can be summed up in this quick sentence. Weezer is the greatest shitty band on the planet who have made two amazing good albums in the 90s and then just decades of garbage after that. And everyone who says they're a fan of Weezer yeah, really means they it. like the first two albums and they put up with the other two decades of garbage. 
And it's true. That, that is that is Weezer fandom summed up. Perfect. It's true. All right. Well, do you want to move on to the Magnificent Ambersons? Okay, yeah. Good. Have a good. Have a. Good. <laughs> right. It was great having you on the hey, podcast. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Talk to you later. Huh.